0: podcast is sponsored by Flash Talking. And in case you didn't hear, they've got a Super Bowl ad. Wait, can I say Super Bowl or do I have to say Big Game? I don't know. Okay, well, Flash Talking's got a Big Game ad. You can check it out at flashtalking.com slash big game. You'll also find a hidden camera prank with improv everywhere and other fun marketing to unleash the power of creative and make ads people want to see. So go to flashtalking.com slash big game for more and I got to say it, this ad could have been an email. Welcome to the Markitecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi, along with John Roberts, the Chief Innovation Officer for dot .dash Meredith. John, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Eric,
1: always a pleasure. Yes, always a pleasure. And this one uh, holds a special place in my heart, even though John and I, you know, we, we've just met. I began my career at a dot .dash brand.
2: Which huh, one? Which one?
1: About.com. Was it called The Mining Company? It was just after the mining company, just after the IPO, just probably at the like extreme peak of the dot com bubble, I joined, and then everything was crazy from there.
0: I always loved about dot com. I love the idea. I loved the content. Um it's it's a shame that it wasn't the original vision wasn't entirely uh, feasible. But we're gonna hear but more today about how it's yeah, evolved. Today right? in, in yeah. in the age of, of, you know, people and influencers is probably as relevant as ever,
1: but yeah. we should talk about
0: it. Absolutely. Um. So first, some housekeeping. So first, I I want to promote that there's a new interview I did with the head of ad products for Spotify. So if you're interested in audio advertising, it's a really interesting conversation and it's free uh, with registration on architecture.tv. You don't need to be a subscriber, although it's great if you are a subscriber. Secondly, Probably if you're listening to this, you're getting the Marketecture weekly newsletter, but I would encourage you to sign up for it because starting next week, I'm going to be curating it myself. We'll have what we used to call show notes. So we'll, all the links we talk about in this podcast will be linked in the weekly email, and I'll be writing original content for it. So I would highly recommend signing up for it. You can sign up at marketecture.tv or at news.marketecture.tv With that said, let's jump in. So the reason we had we wanted you on here, John, is, um, first of all, we love anyone with the chief innovation officer title. But secondly, <laughs> there's so much doom and gloom oh, that, you know, and we'll talk about publishers going out of business and, you know, online publishing being a terrible business. And yet, Dot Dash Meredith, you know, doing gangbusters. It's America's largest digital and print publisher. That's uh, that's the tagline. So what's the special sauce there? What's going on? We've come a long way since the days of about.com. I've been with the company
2: since 2013, just after about was acquired from the time by IAC. And through that time, we took about.com, we tore it down to the studs. We rebuilt it as dot dash with these great endemic vertical brands. We then figured out that fixing about.com taught us things that could be applied to other companies. And so we have acquired a number of companies on the way. And in 2021, we acquired Meredith and of the last couple of years have rebuilt that and got that back to growth which has been an incredible journey and through that path and also with the growing of the brands that we had got us the scale we are now the things that are working are honestly the same things that worked when we started building the first brands out of a which were build fast sites super fast sites have really great content and only have ads that work for users so honestly get rid of a ton of the junky ads that slow down the site and make it bad for users, which is always a fun growth thesis to tell to a CFO But we're going to take a third of the ads off so we can make more money. Um, <laughs> that's, that is not the way most publishers have been running. Um, but we were able to prove it with the first couple of acquisitions and the first couple of pivots. And it's worked over and over and over again. But building really fast sites with great content and only ads that work, it turns out, is really hard <laughs> to do at yeah. scale.
1: I feel like we're gonna have a podcast on this question, so you know, you don't have to go super deep. But how do you make a site fast? What are the ads that, you know, slow down a site and you know are bad for UX? And you know, what what does a good publisher experience look like?
2: The first piece is anytime anyone says, don't worry, it's only one line of JavaScript. (laughs) (laughs) I've never said that. I have never said that
0: in my life. The greatest lie in ad tech.
2: Oh, it's amazing. No, it's It's a lot of detailed hard work, but the short version is only allow code on the page that does exactly what you absolutely need to do and make sure that the things that you're doing are done in the order that make it most useful for users, right? So when it was like all about cumulative layout shift and making the page, just load the things that somebody needs as fast as possible, then worry about everything else. And if you do it in that order, and it really does have to be a ground up, like allow only the stuff in, in order that you need, then it'll be fast for users. If you try and kind of pull back down and like take things off, you never get down to the level of discipline you need to make the sites fast and work well. But I guess the short version is just a lot of the history of publishing has been make money as a publisher that your advertisers will accept, that users will be okay with, right? And that kind of publisher revenue first model results in all kinds of things like institutional advertising and like all the things that are very interruptive. Can you say, I have to do these to make people engage with ads? We took the alternative approach and said, if we do things that help users, then they're going to do stuff. The last thing they do is never with us. It's always with an advertiser. Right? We don't sell you know, brokerage accounts or actually we do sell furniture now, but like, <laughs> we, don't, we don't actually do the final thing where you won't come and renovate your house. right? So the next step in your journey is always with a partner. So if we help you, you're going to go and do something and that is going to make an advertiser happy, which makes us more money. So that kind of user-first approach Is actually a publisher-first approach. It's just you build things differently if you start there.
0: So did you do any specific empirical testing on the relationship between the speed of the site and the results? We actually don't. I mean, the test is kind of a test in production
2: test, right? Right, right. Move everything on, make it much faster, and you know it's going to work. It's kind of one of the things you can't test into, right? You can't iteratively get in piece by piece. We know it's better for users. We know it's a better user experience because we use the internet. A so 12 second load time on mobile isn't a good idea. And so it, we kind of have a more burn the boats approach like leave it behind, move forward, do the right thing, and then figure it out. When we figured this out on smaller acquisitions or smaller sites, we had the confidence to know that when we took the same approach and did it to, for example, People Magazine, which is an absolute monster that it would work there too.
0: So before the acquisition, People Magazine had a bunch of cruft and tags and JavaScript and stuff. And then you did your your dot dash method, if you want to call it that, strip everything out. And what was the impact? Like, is it, do you make more money? Or do you have more page views? Or is it just that you feel good about it? It's hard to justify
2: acquisitions on a personal feel of feeling good. So <laughs> yes, all, all these things actually do have to turn into business outcomes. Yeah, we, we moved each of these businesses onto uh, an evolved version of what the dot .dash tech stack was over the course of 2022. And in most cases, we ended up with something like a 12-plus-second page load speed coming down to about a second. That affects user behavior, bounce rate, time on site. It also has to affect all the ad speed. Right, We had to make sure the ads were coming in very quickly because you can actually end up in a world where your pages are faster than your ads. (laughs) <laughs> right that's uh that's a like good problems to have that's They're a problem, good problem to have, have but it is one you have to work through and also we removed a, a bunch of the ad loads and what happens then is when you take the ads down the first thing that happens is on day one you make less money because you have fewer ads but then the market takes time to price that quality in and what we see is within one to two
0: weeks after you do the improvement of the ad quality the cpms pop with the ad quality are you just talking about removing like the you know tabula and outbrains of the world from the bottom of the page or is there a change in terms of removing you know certain programmatic techniques
2: it's a bit of all the above right again latency in the ad call is painful right so you want to strip down your list of integrated partners so the ads can happen fast one more ssp will slow down everything and actually can often devalue right the ads but equally just low viewable ads at the bottom of the page which is just like just add one more ad right. right a low viewability ad doesn't just devalue that ad it actually devalues all the imagery on the page so if you get rid of the low quality ads the high quality ones suddenly are worth more
0: right right and are you selling through a mix of private deals open exchange and guaranteed or did you turn off open exchange
2: oh no we um we're huge. Right? We're getting 30, 32 million people a day coming through the business. So we work with everybody, however people want to buy. So we have a big open exchange business. We have a PG, PMP business. We do a lot of direct I.O. Uh, business. So,
0: yeah, all the ways that people want to work with us. Uh, we are very happy to make that easy. So I wasn't going to bring this up right away uh, because it's a long conversation. But while we're talking about page speed, uh, how are you feeling about the sandbox? What's your what's your sandbox strategy? <laughs> uh, that is a long conversation.
2: um no, I think look when Apple took away cookies, they didn't have a replacement. Google is taking away cookies, but they have a clear stated replacement for most of that tech. That's a really complicated new version of ad tech to adopt. It's going to take some time to figure out what works, and we're much more interested in finding out quickly what doesn't work so that we can help the sandbox identify it and fix it right this has to work down the line this is where we are all headed so we can either kind of throw rocks and say this doesn't seem to be but we're much more interested in like getting in getting into the weeds testing everything and providing clear feedback on all the things that have to make this work for a publisher right cuz that will also make your work on the buy side
0: how engaged are you right now do you have a team working on this
2: we've been digging into the sandbox tech since the summer uh with like real seriousness everybody at feel from talking across the ecosystem, but you've been talking to more people than I have on this, was really kind of gearing up to be able to start doing kind of integrated end-to-end tests in Q1 of this year, right? Lots of people did like isolated testing, like technical proof of concepts in the second half of last year. But now we're at a point of let's stitch it together and see not just can we run it, but can we actually run a marketplace on this? And those are two quite different questions. So now we're into that point of kicking off full end-to-end tests like client through dsp through ssp to us with chrome with gam right get everyone organized and and prove what works and what doesn't we have got results we can talk about yet but we intend to have those quickly because again we need to like find the things that are broken fast so that the team has time to fix it so they can work uh, and make sure that this works for the
0: market it sounds actually like you're investing quite a bit here um probably ahead of a lot of other folks your Sorry, PR person ahead. very helpfully gave me a note. We're optimistic about the end of cookies. Ask him about this or something more like that. So, <laughs> are you optimistic? Is your PR person accurate? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I've been an
2: optimist for a long time about a lot of things, but this one's actually grounded in you know facts. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, we've been running most of our direct campaigns cookie list, since I think twenty seventeen. We made t-shirts in twenty eighteen that said no cookies, no problem. So this isn't some kind of brand new concept we suddenly need to get our heads around. And honestly, Apple took away cookies from half the market in 2019 and we've we, we solved for that for ourselves. It feels a little odd to be in this moment this year, people running around saying cookies are going away. Like half the internet's been unaddressable this way for, you know, yeah. four or five years, right? This isn't new. So I say optimism is probably the wrong word for it, confidence, because I'm optimistic with case studies, right? We know this works. We know that you can target better without cookies than with them. We had a guarantee to all of our clients that we can target better without cookies than with them, and we'll take the bet and support that. We've never had to pay out in a guarantee yet. So I think there is an opportunity within this, not only to kind of fix and replace some of the cookie technology this year but actually to bring back technologies that never needed cookies. And that helps really bring a premium back to publishing, which I think we can all agree is badly needed.
1: And by that, you mean
2: contextual? What else? Yeah, so we built a tool called Decipher last year. We released it for our targeting solution. It's intent-based. The signal it's using is the content. It's a couple of steps more than just contextual, which is, I think, important. But because it's using the content, it means that the audience is 100% addressable. There's no cold start problem. You're not trying to figure out who somebody was two weeks ago. I think one of the um, the things that annoys me is that we ever started using the phrase cookie targeting. There isn't such a thing as cookie targeting. It doesn't exist. There's only really cookie retargeting. But right? a new cookie doesn't tell you anything. The cookie's only as useful as the information you picked up yesterday. Absolutely, That's yesterday's information. What a right? great point i we can just target because we know precisely what you're doing right now, right It's instant there's no hundred millisecond delay to do it like doesn't exist. It's just what do you want to do right now? Let's help you do it. It's a very simple
1: do you break out the print business versus digital because print is in the is in the tagline, which I find like you know pretty interesting in twenty twenty
2: four so we are a we are America's biggest print publisher and America's biggest digital publisher and there's a big chunk of revenue on both sides of that. We're part of a public company, so you can go look at the earnings if you want to talk about that. The really interesting thing is we do break them out and talk about those lines of revenue separately, but we treat print as an integral part of each of these brands. And actually, our fastest-growing brands, our fastest-growing businesses, also have print associated with them. It turns out that brands that people have known and loved for a 100 years do great on the internet.
0: Yeah. The ability of a consumer to to sort of trust the content because they recognize the brand is very important when, especially when so many of the user sessions are from social and they're one and done. Um, you know, basically you get that advantage of brand awareness. So what does a chief innovation officer do? Like what's your day like? You wake up in the morning, (laughs) put on your lab coat, (laughs) start innovating, start, start stripping ads (laughs) off the pages, (laughs) causing havoc add up to oh, people running after you
2: chief innovation officer is is a is a great title because it tells people almost nothing about what you actually do <laughs> um i'd say that um a lot of what i've been doing with this title is it's a lot of like here's an interesting problem go figure it out which is often a lot of like here's a thing that's broken go work on fixing it right so from the days of com until now, there have been a lot of things broken inside the company that we've had to go fix. So I've had a, a good chunk of experience working across all segments of digital publishing. And I think where we are now, a lot of the things that we have had to fix internally are now fixed. I'll never say all because it's never all. But also then coming to identify that there are problems in the market that are broken and problems in the ecosystem that are broken. And given that we see Hundreds of millions of ad calls a day, and we have a front row seat to pretty much the entire ad ecosystem. A portion of my job is understanding how that really works, and starting to use the the front row seat we get to unpick that and see where the the problems are. You I know, mean, a, a good example, right? Of the the insight was we built a system that can listen to all the bids of how people are bidding on our inventory. So we get all the individual SSPs and how they're bidding individually. We can see how. The Google marketplace is bidding, the Amazon marketplace is bidding, which they can only see their own individual piece of it. Right. We see the whole spectrum. So we can say not just when an SFCP bids and wins, that they obviously know. We can see when they bid and lose, and to who, and by how much. And we can see and compare and compress the bidding behavior. And what we found was, just on the client side SSPs, a lot of them, in many cases all of them, are bidding on a... About 100% of the client-side SSPs will bid on 10% of our users, right? And a significant lower fraction will bid on like the 60%, right? The Which is heavily on iOS, cookie, list, cookie breakage, all of those pieces. TAM behaves differently, Google behaves differently. Somebody will buy all the inventory, but what it means is that for that 10%, that everybody has a match table for that 10%, everyone can match that cookie. The buy side is getting charged, in some cases, many cases, 6 Hundred percent more, right? That's not because they're more valuable; it's just because they're matchable, right? Right? And so this artificial concentration that's happening, just because everyone's bidding on this smaller, identifiable audience, is artificially constraining supply, and artificially constraining supply in an auction jacks up the price to the buy side. So if people say, "You've got an audience, but we can't afford to buy it." it's Like we've got a great audience. You're not being shown the right way to buy it, and that is charging you guys too much money.
0: Yeah, I was just talking to uh, someone who didn't want their name used, but was telling me, about how DSPs have such um, bad, effectively, systems, in some cases, they'll only bid when cookies are present, even if the user's uh, targeting, the line item's targeting is not cookie-based. Like frequency cap, for example, this was the case with beeswax, where if there was no cookie and then there was a frequency cap, you just wouldn't bid. And so what this executive told me was that some SSPs are just inserting fake cookies into every request. Like, they just don't match anything, but it's a string. There's just some numbers there because it tricks the DSP into bidding for things.
2: So I, I said that the market was broken, and you just took that. Line drawing and colored it in.
0: <laughs> I, I'm so happy about what you said about how there haven't been cookies on half the market for years. I've been screaming that effectively the most valuable consumers, the younger consumers on their iPhones and the uh, and Safari users, etc., have just been ignored, which is a massive inefficiency in the market. So hopefully, the end of cookies will will uh, solve that. As a chief innovation officer, how much
1: are you like experimenting with? AI solutions today, whether that be for like workflow or operations or, you know, sort of some of the more like horizontal things
2: around ad targeting and creative. Yeah, I think the look, AI is so new at the moment. Uh, I mean, we're 13 months into kind of the full adoption curve of, of AI. We're a large language business. Right, we have a lot of words. These things help you move a lot of words around very efficiently. Right, so not a shock. Right, there's huge efficiencies that you can kind of dig into to try and help with research and and a bunch of things there. As Neil, our CEO, said publicly, like we're not going to create content with AI. Like that's not the goal. AI is very good at giving an average answer. We're not really interested in average answers. We want the best answer. But mathematically, uh, these large language models give you an average answer. And they also have like the well-documented challenges of hallucination and all the things that come out of that. There's a lot of opportunity across the business for doing this. We lean in very hard to using our content to understand our users by putting large language models in that process and getting them to like really deep understandings of what the user is likely to do within the content that they're on. was an opportunity to take the success we've already had without using AI to understand our content. and. Step that up a level to get even more fine-grained at targeting at Creative Right. There's there's a lot to build, but it's very new.
0: Are you uh of under the assumption that you're sitting on a gold mine because of all the text you have? Are you uh looking at your text asset as uh something that people should be paying for?
2: I'd say we're sitting on the gold mine because it's twenty twenty four and we're a very large growing digital publisher that's profitable. So that gives us the confidence that the business we're in is good. I'd say that, yeah, with these, with these models, things that they often lack are any kind of human authorship, any kind of understanding where the facts came from, any like, sourcing of that data or reliability. By adding in human-written, human-authored, fact-checked, cited, medically-reviewed, financially-reviewed content, that you know who wrote it and when they did it, the combination of that with a large language model is really exciting because it solves some big pieces of the problems of these models on their own. And so, yeah, I think that there's, that there's a lot of opportunity between having millions of pieces of content that we know everything about tied into large language models that can understand that at a level of sophistication that was previously very hard to build.
0: The text is the new oil. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with the news of the week. We have Google earnings, uh, a lot of things happening. Um, so let's get to it. This market podcast is sponsored by Adelaide. Remember, where's Waldo? He was 100% viewable, but still awfully hard to find. Your digital ads are like Waldo viewable, but in a sea of distractions. You need to move beyond viewability. Adelaide helps brands like Mars, Audi, Colgate, and the NBA measure media quality, and drive better performance by optimizing campaigns programmatically with attention data. Adelaide's metric, AU, is available on nearly every major DSP and SSP, making it easy to leverage attention metrics. Get a free Waldo was viewable t-shirt at adelaidemetrics.com Waldo. All right, we're back. Uh, so earnings week, Google and Microsoft earnings came out. Eric, you want to take us through this?
1: yeah sure um so uh Google and Microsoft uh both reported the same day Google I think uh either I looked at first or, or went first, so um so they were up the Google business um was up eleven percent year over year sixty five point five billion dollar business in q four which is just bonkers the size of these it's numbers crazy now. How big that is. um yeah, oh my god, alphabet as a whole uh eighty six point three billion up thirteen percent youtube uh nine point two billion up sixteen percent year over year. The network revenue, which you pointed to, and I'd like to sort of get your breakdown on this, let's say down, down. 2.1% year over year. Yeah. So, um and, you know, they... Sundar said that he expects uh, more job cuts throughout the year. So this, like, slow bleeding of of cuts is going to continue to happen. Um, The market did not like this, sold off pretty hard, and, you know, interpreted it as some softness to come in the the
0: ad business. But talk about that network thing, because I think you you, you broke that down deeply. Well, the subject of this podcast is largely the open internet and monetization, ad tech, martech of open – and that is what the network business is. So Google calls its network business what was formerly known as DoubleClick plus the ad exchange, plus I think it includes GDN. And um, that business has been flat to down over the last several years, and it doesn't show any sign of turning that around. Eric Suford, who's a uh, colleague of ours and publishers of architecture, sometimes he has this chart showing how much bigger YouTube is getting than the network business, and it crossed a billion dollars. So YouTube is now a billion dollars larger than the network business. So all of us ad tech geeks, the people who go to the IAB conference, All we're talking about is open web generally, and that business is no longer even the second largest business at Google. Now it's the third largest business at Google and of decreasing importance every day. Does PMAX factor into that number, the the, the network number? I don't think so. It's very complicated because PMAX crosses YouTube Hmm. search and everything else. So they may, maybe someone knows this and I could just look it up. They may include the sell side revenue when a PMAX bid goes to the exchange, it might be included in a network, but the buy side would probably not. It's very complicated. So I I know lots of people at Google. Um, I'm pretty tied in to people. And I would say morale there is as low as you could possibly imagine. Every person I talk to thinks Sundar is very ineffective, even though the stock's near its all-time high. um, There's no vision. There's no excitement working there. And this drip, drip, drip of layoffs is not helping at all. So uh, I think it's uh, it's not a great situation, even though the company seems to be hitting on all cylinders. John, any anything on Google? You want to take a pass? Pass take from pass. Down. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Got it. Got it. Okay. No problem. Microsoft. You know, we can quickly go into it. So, Microsoft as a whole, sixty-two billion dollar business in Q four. Um, the the Azure business is just like taking off like a like a rocket. That's where most of the real conversation and momentum is around AI. But the ads business was up. So ads was up uh, 8%. Um, that's defined as search and news. And then LinkedIn was also up 9%. So similar growth in Microsoft, just kind of you know plotting along at what I think is like faster than industry growth rate, huh?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, incredible business. Uh, LinkedIn is like the YouTube of Microsoft. It's like, you know, they, they don't have to do anything and it just grows and they just print money. And uh, it's really interesting to see how they, evolve their ad business i think it's still pretty siloed between xander linkedin netflix what used to be msn Um, they're all kind of doing their own things and they haven't really made any moves to kind of consolidate it or make it a little more logical so i I think there's definitely something to watch there we haven't talked enough about the sandbox let's talk about the sandbox some Uh, so as people probably know, Google's effort to remove cookies and implement the sandbox has been sort of through some convoluted method been put under the jurisdiction of the UK's Competition Markets Authority, the CMA. And so they released both Google and the CMA put out very long, complicated PDFs talking about the Q four progress. I read them, so you don't have to. And effectively, <laughs> they what well they the 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 main thing they said was Google's complying. You know, they're still talking to us and answering our questions. So good job, Google. The Google document, the one Google put out is enormously complicated and detailed where every single, like, objection you might have to the sandbox is documented and then their response is documented. So things like, would Google be able to get an advantage by controlling the sandbox implementation and blah, blah, blah scenario, and then Google has a response. So there's a lot of work going on here. I pulled a couple of quotes out of the CMA's document, which I think are kind of interesting. So the first one is, And this is one of the concerns I've heard from various people, uh, which is clarifying the long-term governance arrangements for the privacy sandbox. In the absence of independent governance, Google currently retains significant discretion over how it works, develops over time, and the conditions for using it, such as requiring attestations. And this creates self-preferencing risks. So what the the UK is basically saying is, this is all well and good, but we're really handing the keys of the car to all. The entire internet to one company and that doesn't sound so good that's how i'd summarize it john you want to take that one you want to give us a hot take on that one
2: it has always been true that big companies on the internet have a level of visibility into things that are going on that they have right if you talk about any of the big dsps any of the big ssps there is a like they have their own technology they put it out there from our side this is going to be a narrative of the whole year and a lot of people are going to work on it. We need it to work. Right. Right. That's actually the primary goal, right? That's, that is the important piece. And that is a separate path to the, all the CMA questions that are, they're that going out there. So our focus is year is just making sure that it actually works. And the other piece is it can easily take up all the oxygen in the year talking about sandbox. Whereas actually, There are a bunch of technologies that solve for these problems that don't require the sandbox. That's true. Uh, The stuff that we've been doing that works in 2017, works in 2023, works in 2024, will work in 2025 no matter what happens with sandbox. And if we spend all of our time just talking about what happens technologically inside Chrome, we are missing the opportunity to actually fix some of these big structural flaws that are possible to fix this year because for all of the other things that have happened, Google shot off a firing gun for everyone to rebuild their whole tech stacks. And so we have an opportunity not just to make sure that the sandbox works, but actually go back and deeply fix some of the original sins of ad tech that have been there for 15 or in some cases 20 years. And I think that is a really exciting opportunity. That if we're only talking about kind of deep regulation problems, we are going to miss the opportunity to fix some of those things this year.
0: Well said, John. I totally agree with you. I'm becoming sort of a sandbox. I don't want to say I'm a skeptic. I find the whole thing distasteful. That's where I'm at right now. I, I find it distasteful for a couple reasons. One is it's enormously complicated. If a if I was the CEO of a company and my engineering team came to me and said, we're going to build these, you know, seven eight new, totally new APIs that thousands of companies are going to have to adopt all at once, I would say there's no way that's going to happen. That's ridiculous. Secondly, the idea that the browser is now a marketing machine is offensive to me on a privacy front. Why is the browser doing any of this? The browser shouldn't do any of this, in my opinion. And thirdly, the ownership of this by Google is just, you know, distasteful. So I'm I'm just I'm having emotions. I'm having feelings about the sandbox this morning. Go ahead, Eric. Can I just say
1: all right, you asked for a take, and whoa, that was like a take from John.
0: So thank you. That's why you listen to this podcast. Okay, speaking of other ways to identify users, a big win here. Dish and Sling both are going to adopt UID, too. So the Trade Desk is continuing its march to uh get UID adoption, especially in CTV. I'll remind folks that uh while there's a lot of skepticism about UID2 and its uptake, Jeff Green in last year said he expects 50% of all CTV impressions to have it. That's where the focus should be, is how much CTV is gonna have UID two, whereas open web might be spotty. John, are you are you have you made any announcements? Are you planning on adopting UID two where you have a login?
2: So actually we we work with a number of the identity providers. We actually are one of the bigger providers of UID2 through all the interoperability with the other identity solutions out there. I mean, we're huge. We have a huge email list. We know we have really good relationships with a lot of of our users. I think the thing that we focus on here is if identity is the whole addressable audience, then you're capping your scale.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right, Because it
2: will never be... All It won't even be the majority, particularly on the open web. right? I don't see a reason why you would put a registration wall between somebody and the information they're looking for right now. That would be a tool for us that would be a tool for us to make money rather than something that helps the user. If we have a great relationship with our users and that gives us a good reason to have that long-term relationship, great. That's that's a great use case for the user. But if we're doing things just to make us more money, that get in the way of what a user needs, that's never the way forward. So capping scale, which inevitably concentrates the market and increases prices to the buyers, wouldn't be the right idea. Identity as part of addressing your whole audience, a hundred percent, all day long. Those kind of solutions are ones we're working with, we're working with it deeply, we're working with the Trade Desk on this. So it's just a it's a slight philosophical pivot sure. between the two, but we want to live in a world where we are maximizing the addressability of all of our audience and figuring out how identity supports.
0: Speaking of identity, a friend of the pod, uh, Keith Petrie, has a company called Locker, He, uh, who's on Justify Your Existence, so that video is on our website. They put out a new product I thought was noteworthy, um, so I thought I'd mention it. So their new product allows publishers to sort of manage which IDs are being sent to which supply chain. So the problem many publishers are having, probably. Probably .dash is not because you're so sophisticated, but many publishers are having a problem of wrangling all their IDs, figuring out which ones to send to which SSPs, managing that whole process. And uh, Locker has put out a new product that does that, and I think it was pretty neat. Thought I'd mention it. Um, yeah, it's a cool idea. It's a cool idea. Say hi to Keith. If you see a guy wearing a brown leather jacket at a trade show, that's him. So they shot the messenger. Not, not my joke. I, I can't remember whose joke that is, but it's funny. <laughs> Fooled me. I left. The messenger, the ill-fated publication, raised over hundred million dollars. Uh less than a year in, died. Um apparently they were not as good as dot dash is at making their pages fast and have good ads. The yeah. um <laughs> anyone want to jump in on yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, we we should just spend a second
1: on this one because it's um you know, this was a startup. Dot dash has brands that are, you know, o- older than than us. So it's not a like comparison, you know, sort of from from a brand standpoint, but I visited the messenger like a couple of times when it first launched. It was full of ads. It It was just like every page had more ad than content and you know credit to them for for trying it trying to you know create a news property like a general news property in 2023 and raising a bunch of money and hiring 300 people but it was effectively the antithesis of everything that John has been talking about um over the course of the past 45 minutes um so somewhat interesting and you know, again maybe a bet on like you know what type of media property to build in, in 2023.
0: Yeah, I mean, hiring a bunch of expensive journalists to write general content, not focused content, and then expecting effectively open programmatic to pay the bills was not a good strategy in 2023, 2024. Yeah, yeah. It's, it sucks though.
1: You never want to see this stuff. And it's been a rough couple of weeks for media, eh? Right, you know, we, we covered the the Sports Illustrated thing ad nauseum, but like Business Insider let go 150, I heard. 150 oh wow, people? that's a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I might be wrong. Check check me on that. And um yeah, it just seems to be like a bunch of, you know, again, juxtaposed against all the stuff we're talking about today, really weird, but like really difficult time in in media and probably a time of real transition. I'm sure
0: Bill Ackman's very happy about it. All right. So, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you want to hear what's going on with LG ads. Um well, I have an update for you. <laughs> uh it's just a quick update, which is the Alfonso shareholders um went through with um uh, reappointing three directors to the board of LG Ad Solutions. Uh, so Ashish Ch- Chorgia, Lampros, uh, I can't pronounce that fellow's name, and Paul Falzone. The, uh, so the co-founders of Alfonso basically are back on the board. And they are now entertaining their uh, options about uh, filing their shares for a public sale, which was the news from original news. So that is th- those statements came from the Alfonso shareholders. I'm just kind of, updating the news as I continue to track this in the event of a potential LG ads uh, IPO, which would be a fun event. Okay, last thing. So um, if you're uh, you probably at the beginning of this pod heard an ad from Flash Talking, they are sponsoring it. Uh, this podcast. But I also wanted to cover them as news uh, because they're doing something fun. Um, they're running a Super Bowl ad and they uh, the ad, if you you'll see it in my newsletter and also online, um, shows them at literally like purchasing a Super Bowl ad using their own technology. It's a very, very innovative and fun little technique. And I think along with like Ryan Reynolds promoting Mountain, we're seeing a renaissance of actually good marketing in ad tech uh, as opposed to you know, really bad marketing and ad tech, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of the norm. Um. Um, so, yeah, two,
1: two things here. Number one, like Aaron Goldman, just you got to give Aaron. Unbelievable. Like, he
0: is so good. He's so good. He is uh, setting the standard for marketing and ad tech.
1: Yeah. Number two, watch the ad and watch it to the end. It's Bill Wise, who we started <laughs> the year with. Absolutely crushes it. Crushes I mean, it. He's he's got a future. He's got a future in 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 being a a pitch guy beyond beyond just you know the the role of the the CEO. And um, this is great. Like they're doing a geo targeted campaign. They're probably putting you know a modest amount of like dollars against it wherever it runs. But the the value of you know what they did from a marketing standpoint is just like so so good. So I want to see more of this
0: stuff. Be creative. Like get get out there. Talk to Aaron. Like this is this is great. John, you must get sales pitches all the time from ad tech vendors. <laughs> what? What's your or idea? you will now? Like what? What? What do you say to these people?
2: It's strange because for a long time at .dot dash you can go to all these conferences and nobody would even notice you walking through the hall. You go to like where at the IAB ALM this week. There's a lot of people who know our faces now. They know who .dot dash Meredith is. So yeah, the world the world has changed for us, and we got to this kind of scale. Oh, look, there's a lot of innovation going on and it's really interesting to see what the threads of the pitches are because you may get a lot of pitches but there are themes to them each year right. right and so as you kind of get a feel for like oh this is where lots of people can see there's a big financial opportunity and that is actually just useful to get a trend for where the market is going i mean all the alternative id stuff really bubbled up i think at the start of last year and then really kind of hit a fever pitch kind of towards the end end of the year and into this year so it helps you kind of get an eye of where people see the the ball going and either we kind of decide to jump in on some of those uh or we decide to go the opposite direction (laughs) you're seeing
0: a lot of pitches a lot of pitches for publisher first-party data i mean there's been pitches around publisher first-party data for years right so it takes a lot to get get the attention of a buyer in ad tech. So uh, keep innovating on the marketing side, I guess, would be my advice to anyone listening. All right. Well, that's the show. So, um, John, thank you so much for being here. This was a really great conversation. I love your advice. Just make the site faster. Like, I, It's so rare we hear that from anyone in our business.
2: If you do the right thing for users, it turns out that can build a really good publishing business.
0: Well, thanks for being here. Eric, thanks as always. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Ari. We, we should do round two at some point. We should. And everyone yeah. remember, sign up for the newsletter. It's going to have some original content starting next week. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you for subscribing to Architecture. New interviews are added every
1: week at Markitecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.